At the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, U.S. payers and policymakers broadly expanded payment for telemedicine services and relaxed many regulations. Most of the federal policies are scheduled to expire several months after the COVID-19 public health emergency ends. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Ativ Marotra, a professor of healthcare policy and medicine at Harvard Medical School and a hospitalist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Dr. Marotra has co-authored a perspective article about the future of telemedicine policy. Dr. Marotra, could you start by outlining the major changes to telemedicine reimbursement and related policies that were implemented early in the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, as you indicated, the goal from everyone across the board was the major concern at the time was we are worried that our patients are not going to get care. And this is going to lead to a second pandemic, if one wants to call it that which is that people are not going to get the care they need for chronic illness or acute problems. And that's going to lead to a lot of morbidity and mortality. And so in an effort to address that, any policy change that could be done to support telehealth was implemented on a temporary basis very quickly. The most notable changes for clinicians were that they could, for the first time, at least within the context of the Medicare program and many other payers, provide telemedicine visits to patients in their homes. They could also use phone visits as opposed to only video visits. The group of providers that could use telemedicine was expanded beyond physicians to many other clinical areas. And lastly, physicians could provide care across state lines because there were a number of licensure waivers that were implemented. Even if a physician was not licensed in the state in which the patient was located, they could still use telemedicine. So what do you see as the primary lessons that have been learned over the past couple of years about the effects of this expansion of telemedicine, the effects on, say, utilization, quality of care, that sort of thing? I think the first notable lesson is, and I think it's what the American public and clinicians experienced, which is that in the context of this pandemic and early on in the pandemic, there was a very rapid switch to telemedicine. The rate of change in clinical care and how we provide care was just dramatic. I think many people have said that what changes that could have happened over a decade happened in just a couple of weeks. I think one thing that is interesting to observe is that since that early peak in April and May of 2020, there's been a gradual shift away from telemedicine visits and a shift back to in-person care. So we're 70 to 80% down from where we were at the height of the pandemic in terms of at least telemedicine use. So that'd be the first lesson there. But one of the points that I make in this piece is that you asked the question of what impact this has had on utilization and quality of care. It's a critical question. It's the one that patients have and clinicians have right now. I switched the way I provide care. Am I still providing the quality of care that I was previously is what clinicians often ask. And the truth of the matter is we don't really know the answer to those really fundamental questions. When we talk about most changes in healthcare, it happens progressively over the course of years where we slowly learn new information and make shifts in terms of how we provide care. In the context of the pandemic and telemedicine use, the change happens so abruptly that we're still catching up a couple of years later. And so the questions that you pose are really what I think needs to be answered in the coming years so that we can answer what impact this telemedicine has had, and therefore then use that data to inform the next permanent policy regarding telemedicine. So what kinds of research are going to be needed to answer those questions? And is the infrastructure in place to conduct the studies that we need to conduct? The first question, I think, is the critical one for payers, the Congressional Budget Office, those in Congress, is whether telemedicine is going to increase, decrease, or is spending going to be the same? 
the Congressional Budget Office has been concerned that the ready access, the convenience of telemedicine, its real strength is also in some ways its Achilles heel and that it will drive more patients to seek care and this will exacerbate the healthcare spending problem we have in the United States. And so that's been one critical question. And then two other major questions. The second question is, what has been the impact on quality? And is a telemedicine-only model or more likely a hybrid model where you provide some care via telemedicine and some care in person? Does it lead to similar outcomes or ideally better outcomes? And then lastly has been the issue of access. And specifically, many clinicians and many policymakers are worried that the growth of telemedicine is going to exacerbate existing disparities in the United States healthcare system, where disadvantaged patients due to what has been termed the digital divide, the differential access to necessary technology, will lead to wealthier populations, urban patients getting telemedicine more than lower income as well as rural patients. And this is going to exacerbate disparities in the U.S. healthcare system. So those are the kind of the key questions. You asked the question, then, do we have the infrastructure to study that? Yes, I think we do. It's not going to be randomized controlled trials. This happened, and so we're going to play catch up and use observational studies to study these questions. The only other thing I wanted to emphasize is not going to be a single paper that's going to answer this question, just as if we were to ask the average clinician, what do you think of drugs? Do they work? Do they not work? Most clinicians would respond, that's a dumb question. Which drug? Which patient? What's the clinical scenario? And then I can tell you whether it's effective and whether it's the right therapy to use. And I think with telemedicine, we're going to have the same similar answer. We're not going to come back with an answer as a telemedicine works or doesn't work. We're going to say that telemedicine in the context of patients with type 1 diabetes is effective, but maybe for, I don't know, heart failure, it's ineffective or it increases spending. So it is going to also be a much more nuanced answer than a single answer on does telemedicine work or not. So you talked about health equity. And in a related perspective article, Green and colleagues describe the need for continued coverage of audio-only visits as essential for supporting equity. So what approaches do you think have the most potential to ensure that digital tools help make healthcare more equitable? I think there's a rigorous debate going on about the role of phone visits or audio. I call it the great rebranding. A phone call was rebranded as an audio-only telemedicine visit. In terms of equity issues, I think it's important to remind ourselves what's the goal. The goal is to have all our patients have easy access to video visits. We do not want to create a two-tiered healthcare system where the rich get video visits and the poor get phone calls. So in that light, if that's the fundamental goal, then the question is, what policy interventions can we do in the interim to try to get to that goal? The first would be to, as much as possible, encourage video visits. And so one policy, for example, that Medicare has implemented, at least for some subset of phone calls, is that they will only reimburse the phone call if the clinician attests to the fact that they offered a video visit and the patient said no. And I think that sounds like a small change, but I think it's quite fundamental because one of the major barriers to disadvantaged populations receiving video visits is many of their clinicians don't offer it. And so we need to make sure that the clinical community offers those video visits to all our patients. In light of that, that will also require some 
policy interventions to ensure that to help those clinicians who aren't using video visits. And lastly, also to implement policy interventions to help disadvantaged populations have the necessary technology. For example, you see many health systems, the VA, that is giving certain patients iPads or other devices to help them use video, have video visits, and also give them the training so they understand how to use that, to, to have a video visit. Finally, asking you to think about the future, what do you predict telemedicine policies and utilization are going to look like in 10 or 20 years from now? Well, first, I think it's important for me to be humble that predicting the future is a fraught task. And so I answer your question with some trepidation. But my view is that currently the debate is largely focused in the policy world about video visits and phone calls, video and audio only telemedicine visits. And my instinct, and at least some data that I have before me, gives me a sense that if we were to look 10 to 20 years from now, that type of healthcare video and phone visits will be a relatively small fraction of digital health. And that other forms of technology, remote patient monitoring, e-consults, apps that are called digital therapeutics, and other asynchronous ways of communicating are going to be the major ways that clinicians and patients interact using digital health technologies. And so we need to also, beyond the debate we're having right now about video and audio-only telemedicine visits, we need to think ahead and think about how do we pay, reimburse, regulate those technologies that are likely to be a more normal way that we provide care in 10 to 20 years from now. Thank you, Dr. Marotra.